0: podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on October 26th to hit the internet on October 27th. How's everyone doing? If you're new to the show, you can always listen on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and you can follow me at BrianBuck13 and follow the show at RedTicketBlues on Twitter. So normally what we do today is, uh, I usually rant and rave about sports, giving my asinine opinions, my failed attempts at comedy, things like that nature. But because the New York Mets are in the World Series and you know, I always questioned whether they were good enough to get here. I said maybe they should play a real team first. Maybe they should, uh, you know, play someone outside of their dopey division of just uh, futility and play with the big boys. And after every game, after every home run that Daniel Murphy hit, I almost thought it was a personal shot at me saying, That good enough, Brian? That good enough, Brian? Is that good enough for you? So what I've decided to do today is we'll have a little special guest. Uh, we will have New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. ...who authored The Bad Guys 1, chronicling the 1986 New York Mets World Series run and eventual championship. Uh, Jeff has uh, written lots of books. He's written six books, in, in fact, uh, including Bad Guys 1, uh, Sweetness, about Walter Payton, uh, his latest book, Showtime. But enough of this. We'll get into a little bit about Jeff and everything that goes along with being a sports writer. I'm talking way too much of this. You don't want to hear this anymore. You want to hear Jeff Perlman. So without further ado, here's Jeff Perlman. So we welcome in New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman, who's written six books, one of which is the definitive account of the 1986 Mets World Series championship team and his most recent book, Showtime, which chronicles the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers dynasty. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Thanks for taking the time today. Ah, my pleasure, man. Good to be here. All right. So before we delve into your work, uh, let's talk a little about you and your background. I mean, you grew up in Mayapac, New York, and you mentioned before that your family were not sports enthusiasts whatsoever. So what exactly, you know, how did you catch the bug? What drew you into the world of sports? Was there a particular team athlete that, that, that got your caught your interest?
1: Um, it's, I guess there's a couple of things, you know, I grew up, so mail pack is really sort of uh great place to grow up, but kind of, you know, middle of nowhere and, uh, you know, very conservative, sort of socially, politically, very, very white. And, um, when I was a kid, I used to, uh, what well, started, my dad used to work in Stanford, Connecticut, and they had a really good library in Stanford. And my dad used to bring me home sports books to so bring home all the sports biographies. And, uh, you know, it would be like, It'd be like, sort of, it sounds corny and cliche, but it's really true, it'd be like this this uh, entranceway to this world I didn't know. And it would be, you know, you know. I, I remember, I was like, like black athletes with big efforts, you know, <laughs> like, because it was so unique to me, you know? So like, I love like Oscar Gamble, and Gary right. Templeton, and Ozzie Smith with the Padres, and like, I love Latin ball players like Joaquin Andujar, you know, guys with like really cool names, Alvaro Espinosa. Like it yeah. was, it truly was sports to me. It was like this introduction to this world I didn't see. And again, it sounds corny and cheesy, like some after school kind of lesson, but it really was true. And it got to the point in mail pack, we had a smaller library, but the librarians knew me and they would hold all the sports books. So Bo Jackson's autobiography comes out. They have it waiting for me. And they'd call me at home and say, all right, we have Bo Jackson's book. Come and get it. Um, and that really, for me, was huge. Um, huge, not just I think becoming a sports writer, but sort of loving sports. And then, and then, I just always remember like the colors. You know, like I feel like little things are overlooked, and, and when, when people talk about their love of sports, and I remember like loving the Padres uniforms, loving the Houston Astros uniforms, and and watching the All Star game as a kid, like Major League Baseball All Star game, when they would all line up along the first baseline and the third baseline. And it introduced the guys from the different teams. And back then you didn't have ESPN and you didn't have a game with the, you know, any game you won on the dish. So you'd see like Rupert Jones from the Padres or Dickie Thon from the Astros and they'd be these, these foreign, really cool guys in these cool uniforms and you never got to see them. So I just I really fell in love with that. That's a long answer, but that's really true. That's kind of what did
0: it. No, no, it makes sense. And I mean, it, it's funny that the that those specific uniforms you you mentioned those are some of the most popular throwback uniforms for uh, people who wear right. baseball uniforms. They they love those old Padres. They love the old Astros ones, and it does make sense. I mean, you see a different world out there, and I mean, and you you, you with that new world, I mean, you you go down to the University of Delaware. And after you graduate from there, you start working at the Tennessean in Nashville. But, um, all the while, even when you're working at Tennessean and, and you're not even a sports writer there, correct? You're, you're a food critic. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> well, I started as a food and fashion writer okay. only because it was the only opening they had. It wasn't like I was a trained food and fashion writer. It's what they had. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: But all the while you're, you have in the back of your mind this, this idea that we're a place you've always wanted to work and that's Sports Illustrated. Um, what was it about Sports Illustrated that, that, as opposed to, you know, writing for a traditional newspaper that, that always caught your curiosity?
1: Um, it's funny. When I was a kid, I was, uh, my parents would only subscribe to Sport Magazine, which, uh, which came out once a month because it was like, you get like 12 issues for like six bucks, you know, and, yeah. and SI was kind of expensive. But I used to, I had a neighbor right down the street. Uh, my next door neighbor was this guy named Mr. Daly. He was a, an older guy, probably in his sixties or whatever. And, uh, he would take the old Sports Illustrated and leave them on the curb for the garbage man. And I would always sneak over to Mr. Daly's house and steal all the old Sports Illustrated. <laughs> and I still have a ton of Mr. Daly's old Sports Illustrated. That's you know, great. Return address. Yeah. And I, um, man, I, I just loved it. I, I just love Sports Illustrated. Like, you know, the, the writing was insane and the photographs and, and, again, back then, it wasn't like you could see all this stuff on TV. You, you know, like the Dodgers. The dodgers astros series was such a foreign thing. Or if the Cardinals were playing the Cowboys in football, you wouldn't really see that. So SI was like this gateway to it. And and when I was, um, I don't know, I was, I, maybe I was in junior high, early junior high, I remember telling my mom, I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And she was like, yeah, well, you have to be realistic. You could, you know, lawyer, doctor. And I wasn't just saying. I was like, "No, I'm telling you, I am going to write for Sports
0: Illustrated." You're like this, is like, uh, like Derek Jeter style. He told his uh, he told his teacher he was going to play shortstop for the New York Yankees, and they said, "Haha, that's funny." Yeah, like, come on, be a little more realistic. Yeah. So you guys are the same, basically, right?
1: Uh, I mean, he made a lot more money than I did, but I,
0: <laughs> I'm just you kidding. know,
1: uh, I always think, yeah, but I do think, like, I really do think there's um there's something to be said for. Like you you see something and you want it and you're not gonna be denied. You know, like I I wanted it. I wanted it so badly. And when I hear like when I talk to like young journalists today, or I teach every now and then I teach courses, classes, and and I'll always be like, So what do you want to do? Oh, I wanna be a journalist. Yeah, right. I know you I know you wanna do it, but do you want it? Like will you do absolutely everything you possibly could to get that dream, and I, and I, you know, well, I want to do it, but I really want to stay in New York, you know, no, I was, I was four days, I was four days after graduating college, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, but, you know, yeah, I want to do it, but I only really want to cover this, you know, I was covering rodeo, you know, I was covering, like, it's food and fashion, like, I would do anything you wanted me to do, because all I wanted in life was to write for Sports Illustrated, it was just, like, my absolute
0: dream uh, job. I mean, that's a tremendous uh, and admirable trait to have in somebody. And I mean, when you're, I think you're still working at the University of Delaware and you're freelancing at uh, SI and you, you, you constructed this, this piece that I think is so creative. It's sort of like the thing that, you know, everyone says to their friends as they're joking around. Or I think I actually put it on my AOL instant messenger all the time trying to be funny. And that was, being a less than marginal basketball player and declaring for the NBA draft and the process that goes along about that. Uh what was it like declaring? Well, wait, I I
1: gotta explain. Go ahead. I gotta explain. So it wasn't you're off a tiny bit only tiny bit. Okay. So when I was in college when I was a sports editor, I was sports editor of the student newspaper, the review. And my sophomore year there was a sports editor named uh his name was Alan Manesick and he was a really good writer and he had played basketball for a year at Delaware. And He said he was going to write a column about declaring for the NBA draft, and and he never did it. So, you know, he he left a good idea on the table. Uh, So my junior year, just for the hell of it, I wrote a letter to the NBA saying, "My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a junior basketball player at Delaware, which is true because I played intramural basketball. I was on a (laughs) team called Edna's Edibles, and we uh, I was I was you know I was a forward on Edna's Edibles, and I said, uh, um. I'm declaring myself, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote the letter and uh, never thought I'd hear anything. And one day I go back to my uh, my, my room at Christiana Towers. And my roommate was a kid named Paul Hanson. He's like, Pearl, you got a letter from the NBA. And I'm like, really? And and it was, you know, dear Mr. Pearlman, um, we have received your letter. And as of this date, you have uh, relinquished your remaining eligibility. And your name will be blah, blah, blah in the NBA draft. And I was like, whoa, oh, my God. And then I was home for some break. And the chief of security from the NBA calls my house and is like, basically like, we don't really know who you are. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm, you know, I play basketball and blah, 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 blah. So, um, I probably wrote a column for my college newspaper, but when I was at the Tennessee and I, I really, my dream was SI and I kind of wrote them a bunch of letters and and eventually she said, why don't you pitch some story ideas? And I pitched like, there's a swimmer who's really good and they were like no and I was like there's a basketball coach who's really good and no and I was like well, I, I want to apply for the NBA draft and they said great and that was my first SI story so That's I was great. Just for the NBA draft um,
0: yeah. when you're at si uh, I mean I'm sure you probably get asked about this still uh, I mean one of your best-known pieces at si was the article when you you know sort of profiled Atlanta Braves pitcher John rocker when he ripped the city of New York and uh, the the population there. He obviously made a lot of inflammatory remarks. I mean, this was a story that, uh, was bigger than sports. It was a news story. Uh, when you finished interviewing him, when you said, all right, thanks for the time, you know, we're done. Did you have any idea the controversy that it was about to provoke?
1: Um, no, I mean, it was, it was really weird because it was like, uh, I probably spent seven hours with the guy driving around Georgia and, um, it was very strange, you know. It was really weird because there, there were nice parts of him. You know, he wasn't. I mean, he, he was entertaining in his assholeness. You know? Yeah, like he if that was. Makes
0: any sense? Was, and he was very into the. Uh, I remember the article where he, uh but he's driving through the the, the what's the, the the toll booth, and he gets angry at the toll booth, and he's he's he gives uh, it yeah, a yeah, finger yeah, yeah. and spits at it. I mean, go ahead. He was just, you know, it was weird.
1: So. The story I remember. I he dropped me off, and I remember calling my mom. Uh, I'm very close to my parents. I called my mom, and I was like, "Oh my God, I don't know what the hell just happened here." And I decided I was just going to write the story straight. You know, like this is what happened. I'm driving basically the the lead to the story is something like you know, I'm driving along route whatever with John Rocker and blah 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 blah. And um, I remember I wrote the story, and and you know they 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 checked all the quotes cause I taped the whole thing. So they checked all the quotes and everything checked out. And, um, I remember I was taking the elevator in the, in the time life building with Steve Russian, another SI writer. And I was like, uh, I was like, I don't know. Do you think this thing is going to make the, uh, the AP wire? And he's like, you have no idea, man. This thing is going to blow up. I was like, I don't know. Really? You think? And uh, so I guess I was kind of naive and, uh, you know, the thing blew up and it was, it was, um, people think it's like, you know, people over the years have thought, wow, that must have been one of the great moments of your career. And to me, it was one of the lowest moments of my career in many ways, because it was kind of embarrassing to put you at the center of a story. Uh, I always have thought and definitely thought back then that the journalist is there to convey information, not to be the information. Um, so it was uncomfortable, you know, it, it got better over time, but it was definitely a weird situation to be in.
0: That's an interesting answer I wasn't expecting that uh, you looked at it as such a low point not a low point of your career but I guess what I'm saying is uh, I didn't expect the the negativity that you took after it to uh, be with you um, So you're at SI for seven seven years and a few years at Newsday and at this point you've, you've solidly you know established yourself as a professional sports writer. And it's right around there when you decide to transition to authoring books. Um, what has been your favorite project in the six books you've written?
1: uh I would say definitely sweetness uh the Walter Payton biography, even though it uh it was kind of a nightmare once it came out right because um i mean i love I love that project. I love Walter Payton. I mean, I love Walter Payton, and uh he's just the most interesting human being. I've ever written about any, any medium, whatever, crossing sports, non-sports Just fascinating guy. And, uh, I put everything I had into that book. I mean, I interviewed almost 700 people for that book. Wow. It was exhausting and exhaustive and I just loved it. And, uh, what happened is, uh, a week before it came out, S I uh, had an excerpt and the i I'm not mad at anyone. i mean, they, they certainly, they were doing me the favor of running the excerpt, but the excerpt was a lot about infidelity, depression, uh, suicidal tendencies and the book hadn't come out and, and the book hadn't been sent out to reviewers. So SI runs this excerpt on the cover of the magazine and it kind of blows up, but it blows up as look at this asshole trying to kill Walter Payton. Why are you doing this to this legacy and this legend? And how dare you do this? Meanwhile, there's this, you know, 500 and something page book that is all about this guy's life and so much positive and so much good. And, but but the excerpt, you know, the eight page or whatever was excerpt was, was all about this negative time period. And I, I I took an absolute beating. And I don't know why, because I was pretty experienced at that part, but I didn't see it coming. Yeah, it
0: really hit me hard. That was about to be my question. Were you expecting the backlash you got from some of you know your peers in the media? I mean, particularly Michael Wilbon, uh, who uh, you probably you've probably gone over this a million times as well. But um, but so you had no idea that that was about to about to happen.
1: I didn't because all right. So, I mean, Wilbon's an interesting. I've talked about this before about him. I mean, a guy I respected and, and still respect uh, in many ways. But he was one of these guys who so the book hadn't come out. He saw the excerpt and he sort of wrote a column ripping me as a guy just doing it for the money. And I mean, I uh, I I I know the flaws in biography. Like I kind of get it. Like you are taking a subject and You're digging into his life, but it's a flawed idea because you can't possibly, you're not living the guy's life. So I don't, you don't know every step of someone's existence. So they're, they're naturally going to be holes, you know, and they're going to be people who say, well, you didn't capture him rightly or you missed this or you missed that. I mean, it just comes with the, with the sort of medium and that's a, that's a fair criticism, but it was, you know, the idea that like you have no business of writing about someone. Um, once they died, or you have no business of digging into who someone was. Uh, I just feel like that's a, it's kind of a disgraceful way to approach history. I mean, I, if you look at no, Martin Luther I, King, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, uh, Joe DiMaggio, Babe Ruth, Luke, I mean, on and on and on and on and on, um, it's important to learn from people's examples and their lives um, and their highs and their overs. And I don't want to just know about Marilyn Monroe's movie roles. I do want to know about her demons. I want to know about her death. I want to know about her struggles because that's how you learn about someone's existence. And that's how you learn how to not make the same mistakes. It's how you learn about the humanity of people. And it just really pissed me off uh, when people are like, how dare you do this? Or how dare you do this after he, he's been dead for 13 years? Like, that's what biography is. And that's what history is. So.
0: No, I I completely agree with you there, and I'm glad you brought up the Joe DiMaggio book by Richard Ben Kramer. I'm not even saying this to blow smoke up your ass because you're on the podcast, but I think when you write a biography, um, you want to look at a person as a whole. I mean, I think with many biographies, especially sports ones, they tend to portray this sort of angelic figure that, you know, wrapped in nostalgia that we all have to say, wow, they were a great cuddly person, we love it. And I think when you do something like Sweetness, you, you want to know about who this person was, and I think you did a great job doing that. And I agree with you. The people that think that you know you leave the bad parts out, how dare you? They're just on another planet, and they don't fully understand what a biography is. Uh, were very you very were very <laughs> Were you shocked by? Well, the, I do.
1: I really do.
0: Yeah. Were you shocked by some of the information? I mean, did you did you foresee any of this information about Walter Payton coming, or was this totally blindsided to you?
1: No, I didn't know any of it. Um, It's kind of a funny thing. Like when you do a, so when you write a proposal for a book, you know, you always, the first thing you do is you write it. You say, all right, I want to write a walker Payne biography. And then your agent will say, well, you know, you got to do a, you have to do something. You know, I'm not, I guess if you're Michael Lewis or Laura Hilliard, maybe you don't have to do uh, proposals, but if you're me, you still have to. And uh, so you do like your 20 page proposal about what the book's going to be. But the truth of the matter is it's all kind of bullshit. You don't really know until you dig. You know, you can't possibly know the life of Walter Payton based off of whatever, you know, the clips you see or or some documentaries. You know, you need to dig into it, but you're not going to dig into it until you have money and time to dig into it. So I knew what everyone else... I actually started the book... I think I, I sat down with Eddie Payton, Walter's brother, very early on, and I was like, I was like, is he just... Is this? Was your brother just like this guy, the unique guy who was truly... You know, just the rare, really good human being. And even Eddie, who I can't stand, by the way, but even Eddie early on, he was like, no, he was no, no one's like that. And he definitely wasn't like that. And he was, you know, to his credit, he was right, because nobody's like that.
0: Nobody. Switching gears from a, you know, a lovable player to two not so lovable players. You profiled Barry Bonds in Love Me, Hate Me, and Roger Clemens in The Rocket That Fell to Earth. Uh, you've said the Clemens book was your least favorite to write, and why, why? Why exactly was that? All
1: right, so this is a true story. I was working on Clemens,
0: and it was okay.
1: Like it wasn't great, but it was it was okay. You know, he had a really interesting family life. He wasn't he wasn't fascinating, and he lacked he lacked a lot of introspection. And guys who aren't introspective are a little difficult to write about because you want people uh, who sort of you want people who have complexity sort of inner workings. And I felt like Clemens was very, very baseball, baseball, pits, baseball, baseball, pits, food, baseball. You know, that was kind of him. He, his mind was not very wide-ranging in his thinking. Um, and I was working on Clemens, and it was okay. And I was I was about to get into the Yankee years, and we found out that a bunch of people from the New York Daily News were going to work on their own Clemens book. So my agent, uh, my agent, my, uh, my editor, uh, called and said, if we pay you blank amount, do you think you could get the book in sooner? And I was like, uh, okay, you know, sure. Yeah. And I felt like I really rushed the Yankee years, you know, like really rushed the Yankee years. And it kind of, it's weird. Recently I got a, a, either a text or I don't know it was, a tweet or email, Facebook, or someone saying like the rocket that fell to earth is the reason I became a journalist. And I was kind of like, really? That's the reason, that's the reason you became a journalist. I don't even like, I did not like the book. You know, like, I, 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 just feel like I left, I hate leaving stuff on the table. You know, I feel like with that book, I kind of left something on the table uh, with the later years.
0: Um, um, no, that's understandable. Um, after, after spending time, I know, but
1: I always hate, I always say, I, I always hate, like, it always bothers me. I remember reading an interview with Eminem, and I really like Eminem, and he, uh, I think it was his relapse album. He, uh, he, he said he didn't like. And I really liked it, and I remember reading him saying I didn't like it, thinking, "Oh man, that's kind of a disappointment." Why do I like this? So I think like maybe somewhere out there is some guy who loves the Rock and the Bell Air, and I just crushed him. <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't have the, I don't have the level nearly the level of adoration uh, that Eminem gets. I'm just saying, like, I don't want someone who, who really likes the book to think, "Oh, even the author thinks it sucks." I'm not it's saying it sucks. It's a thanks book. a
0: lot, Jeff. You just ruined someone's day. Um, yeah, all right, I'm crushed. Uh, after spending time researching both those players, Clemens and Bonds, did you find them to be as dislikable as many people in the public perceive them to be?
1: Uh, I did, actually. Well, more um, more Bonds and Clemens, actually. It's funny, because uh, I think Clemens is relatively dumb. I don't think he's the smartest <laughs> guy. Right I, mean, I, think, I really don't. I don't even... I was going to say, I don't mean as an insult. I mean, right. really a compliment. But I don't, think, I don't think he... Again, I don't think... I think his brain is very simple in the way it works, you know? And I think, like, he why did he cheat? He cheated because he wanted to pitch longer. You know, like, so why wouldn't you cheat? Like, I want to throw harder and I want to play longer. Therefore, I'm going to cheat, right? Right. That's Roger Clemens. I think mean, Bonds is a very intelligent man who's just a complete dickhead. And, like, maybe he's not anymore. Maybe he's, he's mellow. It seems like he's trying to mellow since baseball. But yeah, like,
0: he does seem a little more mellow.
1: I think so, and I, I'm i I'm sure he, he should be, because why would you need to be that tightly wound? But I mean, back then, he would, you know, eat his mother. You know, like, he would, like, run over. He, he was just a bad guy who would do bad things to anyone who stood in his way. And he was horrible to fans. He was ridiculously awful to the media. He was shitty to teammates. He just was not a redeemable character. Um, and he was an interesting guy to write about, I have to say. And I do think of all the books, if I say The Rock and the Thunder Earth is my worst book, I feel like uh that book, Love uh, Love Me, Hate Me, is a book, I, I almost like, I'm kind of haunted a little bit by what could have been because it came out two weeks after Game of Shadows. Right, right. Which is right. great. Um, but it kind of got lost in that shadow of Game of Shadows. Yeah. That was uh, that hurt. That was a bummer.
0: Yeah, that that was definitely a rough timing issue with the release of that book.
1: Oh, um, it's the worst. It was very, it was a very low moment and it was very like, it's one of those things where you find out Game of Shadows is coming out. I only found out a couple weeks beforehand and you find out yeah, this book is coming out
0: first. I was gonna ask you that. Was there no did you not know? Did you and your publishers not have not have any idea that this book was being produced and ready to come out?
1: I think we knew shortly ahead of time, and it was too late whenever we found out. And it was sort of like at that point it was let's take a let's put a good spin on it. And the Wall Street Journal at the time did a story actually about these two Bond books coming out. And I remember my editor just putting his absolute best spin on it. Like, you know, that book is about this, but this book is about this. And there's certainly room on the market for both. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm fucked. Mm. You know, This isn't going to end well. And the book, the book actually, considering the circumstance, sold well-ish. But I, I just, you know, it kind of got lost.
0: Um, well, speaking of a book that did not get lost, uh, moving backwards to your first book published in 2004, The Bad Guys Won, and that's, of course, the definitive account of the 1986 New York Mets run to the World Series championship. Uh, when you be decided that you wanted to go the route as an author, uh, was this a project you always envisioned, or did, how exactly did this come about?
1: Oh, it wasn't even my idea. It's so funny. Of all the books I've written, the one about the team that I really cared about the most wasn't uh, wasn't my idea.
0: I, had, I was working at
1: SI, and uh, a good friend of mine named John Wertheim had just written a book, about uh, the women's tennis tour. And I was like, I don't know books. That's kind of interesting. I'd never really thought about it. And, um, I had an agent approach me and she's like, why don't we talk about ideas? And I think my big idea was I wanted, I wanted to write a book about the rock band kiss. I don't even know why. I think I wanted to write the drummer's autobiography or some, some, something stupid like that. And she's like, I don't know. What about, uh, what about the 86 next? And I was like, wow, that's a great idea. That's a really great idea. So, um, I wrote a proposal. I signed up. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was in for. And, uh, you know, it, it turned out to be really fun, actually. Uh,
0: I know you researched this and interviewed a lot of people just like you do with all your books. Um, who was the most compelling person you interviewed for this book?
1: Um, I mean, it's kind of funny. It depends on the day you ask me. But I would say uh, the guy who really jumped out is Kevin Mitchell. Um, he was just like, he was just like, he was this gangbanger from San Diego who had this bullet lodged in his back, and he took no shit whatsoever. And, but he was really endearing and really kind of lovable. And it was interesting because at the time, you know, there, were, there weren't there were many African-American players in the mix, right? Um, you had George Foster, who nobody had much interest in. It was kind of the standoffist bet. You had Mookie Wilson, who was just lovable, but didn't have that many close friends on the team. You had Doc and you had Darryl, who were obviously... Kind of devilish at that point, point. and then you had Mitchell, and and the the management of the Mets really wrapped Mitchell up with those other two guys, Goodman and Strawberry, because he was young too, and I think they assumed because of his background that he was the bad one, and it turns out he was probably the, the most decent of the bunch <laughs> of the three, but they scapegoated him and got rid of him, and one of the horrible trades in that history where they got Kevin McReynolds, and you know Kevin Mitchell was really one of the lifeblood of that team. And he was just like really spunky and smart guy and street smart, but also intelligent smart. And uh, I just really kind of like him. I really like him.
0: Speak, speaking of uh, Doc and Daryl, um, you didn't get a chance to interview them for this book. Do you think that if you had gotten the chance to sit down and talk to them, they would have given you maybe a somewhat different perspective? Or do you think you still got the same vibe of the book that you wanted?
1: I mean, I, you'd always pick to talk to someone, but if you're not going to have someone talk to you, it's best if it's the superstars um, because they've been interviewed a million times. You know, I mean, Dwight Gooden, I don't know how many questions there could be left about 86 or Darryl Strawberry. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I mean, you like to think you're good enough interviewer that maybe you can get some original material, but I think the reality is um, I was better off interviewing Ed Hearn and Terry Leach probably than I would have been interviewing Gooden and Strawberry at that point.
0: Okay. Um, considering the Animal House stories that, you know, made the 1986 Mets, do you think a team like that would ever have a chance surviving in today's media or social media landscape?
1: Uh, no, I do not. I think, uh, I mean, you know, the big thing is, um, people always ask about that. And I know that the audio, the automatic like reply is no, with Twitter and Facebook and iPhones. I think one of the big things that, that, you don't have anymore, are, um, is beer in the clubhouse, right? right? Like 86, the Mets come off the field and there's a keg in the clubhouse. And these guys are sitting around and they're recapping the game and they're drinking and they're getting wasted and they'll shower and they'll go out afterwards, right? And nowadays, you go in the clubhouse, they're definitely not drinking, uh, alcohol. They're all going their separate ways. They have a lot of times they're listening to their own iPhones, you know, listening to the music. Uh, just getting out as quick as possible. So I think the big, huge difference, obviously social media, but is beer. I just think beer was such a part of those times and that team in particular, and you just don't have it anymore.
0: No, that's that's a, actually a very good answer, I think, because I, even just the presence of beer, even if just a few guys having a drink, you know, yeah. It's just together, sitting around bros, all of a sudden that, that creates a different environment than even, again, even if it is just a few 12 packs or something for an entire team, I think that, that definitely creates more of a communal aspect instead of the, you know, not Wall Street style, but business style that most teams are today. Um, yeah, two- no, so also
1: if you, if you took like, if you took the starters on the Mets today, like if you took the, the four young starters, right? And, all of a sudden, you saw them drinking beers in the clubhouse after every game. I mean, they would have a field day. Oh yeah. First time Jacob Degrom gives up seven runs over three innings, they'd be blaming the beer. Or if Matt Harvey says he can't piss on the innings, they'd say, "What are you, you?" But you're sitting there drinking beer after the game. It just—it's just a sets of different world now. It just doesn't work. You know, you couldn't have it.
0: Jeff, it's like you're looking at my notes. The questions I'm about to ask you here, the tone and yes. demeanor of the '86 uh, Mets and the 2015 Mets—that's. Pretty pretty different. Do you, do you see any parallels whatsoever?
1: Uh, the only things I see that are similar, I mean, the main things I see are uh, young pitching, like young, young, awesome pitching. I mean, if you if you think about 86, you know, that rotation, Gooden, uh, Darling, Sid Fernandez, Ojeda, who was a bet, he wasn't even 30, uh, Rick Aguilera, you know, I mean, that was outstanding, the best young rotation in baseball. And now you have the best young face in baseball. And the other thing that's really interesting is, you know, in '86, the Yankees were a solid five years removed from owning baseball. You know, in '81 they'd been to the World Series. That was really their last rise, as you know, from the sort of late '70s Reggie years. That '81 was, was the last, last of it. Uh, and the year later he, he leaves the Angels. Reggie does. And here we are. And, you know, it's been about five, six years since the Yankees could really be considered the team to baseball. Um, and, you know, in 86, the Mets really own New York. And you could see, I'm not saying the Mets own New York, but I think if they win the World Series this year, it would not be shocking if the Mets outdraw the Yankees next year and the foreseeable future. So I think you see a team about to steal the city. When uh, a couple of years ago, would have been, it's a laughable idea. Uh,
0: as a Yankee fan, if you could only see the tears coming down. My cheek right now. But, but
1: do, you disagree? do you disagree with me?
0: No, it's absolutely the truth, uh, especially with that pitching and the Yankees staff. have become boring. That, and the Yankees
1: sh- have become boring.
0: Extremely boring. The new Yankee Stadium uh, just is a – Boring? A, it houses boredom. That That's what that stadium is. It
1: really does. Man, they made a mistake. They built a shopping mall. They built it's, a shopping mall. Damn, and
0: That's a great comparison. And, you
1: know, like, I, I just think, like, like so just Curtis Granderson is an example. I know he was a flawed player and this and that like the guy has something going on you know there's certain players granderson whenever i watch granderson with my son i'm just like this guy has something going on where he just has a spunk and a zest and a zeal and there's something about him that you just want to watch play baseball um and the yankees do not have that many guys like that anymore no. it's kind of i guess you know it's just kind of a
0: bummer here, yankee fan It's it's the absolute truth. One more question with parallels here. Do you think this 86 team would have embraced a uh, crying Wilmer Flores or accepted a Matt Harvey innings limitation declaration?
1: I think Flores they would have been okay with because that was love. That was like love for baseball and love for New York. And I think they would have – in fact, 100%, if you – let's say whoever, Wally Backman, finds out that he's going to be traded somewhere, he probably would start crying on the field Because there was, like, a real brotherhood, or Dykstra, or Mookie. Those guys would have cried on the field, probably. Um, I don't think the the inning thing would not have gone over well. No. (laughs) They would
0: have made it. (laughs) Um, So this past weekend, you predicted the World Series outcome on Twitter. The Mets win the series four games to two. Are you uh, taking a drive to Vegas and uh, putting your money down on that? How strongly do you feel about that prediction? Uh, Oh, I don't know. I mean... (laughs)
1: Yeah, I feel like you're required by law to make a prediction. I just, you know, it's kind of funny though. It is, it is entirely possible and probably probable that Daniel Murphy goes for like three for twenty in this series. You know, and and Lucas Duda still so has a hole in his swing. You know, except for that. You know, the last game. You know, he had a horrible had a horrible playoffs, and David Wright hits two hundred. And you know, there are a lot of there's still a lot of question marks in that lineup. So it's all about the young pitching, right, and the Royals right. can hit. Right. So. Honestly, it's all like you're not going to see me gloating if the Mets win in six games because it's all just a crapshoot and you're required. People say make a prediction, so you make a prediction. But how do I know? I know as
0: much as anyone else. Okay, so Perlman guarantee, four games to two. Got it. Um, yeah,
1: exactly. Block it.
0: <laughs> Speaking of internet presence, uh, you have a blog, jeffperlman.com. How long have you uh, been blogging there?
1: Uh, since 2008.
0: 2008 and i particularly enjoy the Q a section you have called the quaz um it's Thank you. it's yeah it's you're welcome it's very different it's an eclectic mix of you know people ranging from former giants running back tiki barber to your gangster rap loving wife's grandmother which is probably one of the best profiles. <laughs> what what was the inspiration for such a wide array of, of interviewees
1: um I really like q as and uh I've always liked Q&A and A's and you are kind of like you're kind of like why the hell not you know and uh it was actually a couple of years ago when I started the quaz I think it's been 4 years since I started that and uh I was exposing my kids to a ton of wonder years on Netflix you know I grew up with the wonder years yeah, I yeah. love the wonder years and uh you know people's brains work differently and I'm really into it. I wonder what ever happened to it. like that's my whole thing I wonder what ever happened to and uh I started wondering whatever happened to Kevin Arnold's girlfriends. And, uh, you know, I, uh, one day I like Googled this woman, Wendy Hagan. And it turns out she had this parenting blog and she'd been Kevin Arnold's girlfriend in one of the episodes. And I was like, if I threw you a Q and A, would you do it? And she's like, yeah. And I did it. And she was awesome, former UCLA cheerleader. Uh, and I did like three more Wonder Years girlfriends. And then I was like, I'm just going to mix it up. I'm just going to, I'm just going to find people who interest me. It's all getting to me 100% about me. What questions would I want to ask these people? It has nothing to do with you or you or that guy or the reader. I'm just going to ask you 10 questions that I want to know. And uh, it kind of became an addiction. And it's it starts feeling like a, collect, a collection. And, you know, one turned to 10 and 10 turned to 100. And uh, this week will be number 230, wow. you know, straight weeks. And I just like, I'm just like, uh, every now and then I'm like, hey, I'm going to stop doing this. And the wife's like, you can't stop doing it. you gotta keep going so uh you know and it's been funny you know i've had it's kind of random i mean i wanted someone good for 200 and i got michael dukakis who ran for president in 1988 that was really cool and i uh i love getting people i disagree with so you know i'm pretty liberal but i like getting you know tea party activists or devout religious figures i had the head of the national american nazi society once do it and I just, it's really fun. You get to ask people whatever you want,
0: you know. It's almost like, uh, if, if you're sitting there on Wikipedia and you just go from person to person to person to person, it's, it's almost like just this, you know, I could be looking up something on the capital of Zaire and next thing you know, I'm I'm learning about the species of mollusks. It's just goes all over the place. And I think that's where yours is. It's your, your, the quaz is, it's all sorts of different interesting interviews with people. Um, Are there any blogs or websites in particular that you follow daily?
1: You know, it's funny. I, um, I mean, I go to the New York times.com every day. I usually go to the Wall Street Journal, uh, out of loyalty. I go to SI.com, although the website kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Um, I used to read Andrew Sullivan's political blog all the time, but he he killed it off, which broke my heart. Um, I do find nowadays I sound like Sarah Palin, or I can't answer the question. <laughs> I uh, I'm really into. Um, I feel like Twitter is taking me to new and funky places.
0: Yeah. You know where? And I
1: think this is the case with a lot of people where it used to be I'm going to go here every day. I'm going to go here every day. And now it's a lot more like, oh, you know, someone someone tweets out. You should read this article about, whatever the GOP debate, or you should read this article about this. And I fi- I really love it because you find yourself uh, discovering a lot of new voices from
0: untraditional mediums, which is kind of cool. No, I agree a hundred percent. And anything in the near future we can expect from Jeff Perlman. If you're, if you can give us any details.
1: All right, here's what I can tell you. I have, um, I can't, I'm finishing up a book right now. So I'm uh, working on a two book deal, which is a first release. And uh, I'm finishing up a book right now. That's due in two months. And I'm too paranoid to tell you what it's about. That's but no problem. In an object. Yeah, I apologize. But, the book after that is my, this is going to sound weird. You're going to be like, that's the weirdest thing ever. But my dream sports book of all time has always been, uh, the USFL. Do you remember the USFL? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: United States Football League, which only yeah. existed from 83 to 85. And was the, uh, you know, the Herschel Walker, Jim Kelly, uh, Steve Young, Reggie White, a million and one different players, um, a ton of rules started there from the two point conversion. To, uh, to instant replay, a million different things. I'm like, teams moving all over the place, teams dying. Donald Trump won the New Jersey Generals. That's right. He grew in the league. So I've, I've always wanted to write a USFL biography, and um, I'm going to get the chance to do it. And I'm, I, I don't know if five people will buy it or five million people buy it. Hopefully five million. But it's kind of my dream project, so I finally decided to do
0: it. Jeff, I want to thank you for being on the Red Ticket Blues podcast today. But before you leave, I have three questions. To play us out here, all right? You ready? I'm I'm here. Okay. Uh, you are a tribe called Quest fan, correct? I am. That's a very big one. What is your favorite tribe album? Oh, come on, It's Low End Theory. It's the
1: greatest hip hop album of all time.
0: See, I waver back and forth. I I'm I'm a tribe fan. too. some days I most times say Low End Theory, but every once in a while I lean over to Midnight Marauders. But you're saying it's Low End Theory.
1: You know, I'll tell you two things. I don't like I hate on Midnight Marauders the uh, the interludes between the songs. Yes. You know, they drive me kind of crazy. I don't I don't I hate that gimmick. Lauren Hill and the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, another awesome, awesome album, does the exact same thing and it just drives me nuts. Um, I also tell you I recently saw the Mike did you see the Michael Rappaport documentary? I
0: did not see that.
1: Oh, I was I saw it and I waited so long and I finally was like, I'm gonna set aside two hours. And it was like the most boring movie of all time, and I was so
0: bummed out. Anyway. Well, <laughs> that that's I'm glad you didn't say like the 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 love movement or beats rhymes in life. So that's 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 okay. Oh come on. Come on. Yeah, I mean th- those <laughs> that, that those are rough. Um. Yeah. Who, I know. Who has been the biggest asshole you've ever interviewed? Are you? A, would you? Would you tell me that? I should say.
1: Of course I would. Okay. Um, I got I have no secrets yet. I'll give you I have three. I'll okay. give you the Holy Trinity. Nice. This is my Holy Trinity of assholes. Uh, number one would be a Rocker. He's just a bad douchebag of a guy. Um, huh. Number two would be Barry Bonds, who was very nice to me, but I've seen him treat so many people so badly that I don't care if you're nice to me. I get that. You know, I hate when people say, "Oh, he's always been good to me." Like that's not really an excuse for someone <laughs> to be a jerk to everyone else if he's good to you. And then number three, who has a special place in my list, would be Will Clark. Really? I hate Will Clark. Oh, he's the, he, he was the worst. Worst in rocker, worst than
0: Bond, Will Clark. He kind of has that face, actually. That kind of makes a little sense.
1: I once wrote a, a, uh, a piece for, so Deadston ran a, a series for a while. I think it was about writers and the biggest jerks, and I wrote something. And the, the headline, which I still love and laugh at, was, Will Clark is a cackling douchebag.
0: <laughs> that, there <laughs> which is.
1: he is. Which he is.
0: <laughs> so final question here, Jeff Proman. Will Daniel Murphy be a Met next year?
1: No. Someone's gonna ridiculously overpay him to hit two eighty with fourteen home runs and seventy three RBIs and make, you know, nineteen errors at second base.
0: <laughs> you don't think the Mets could be that but special team? Them.
1: No, they're not gonna first of all they don't need to because they're gonna they just move one more floor as a second, keep the hot at short. Um I like Murphy a lot. I really do. I think he's a very solid major league player and a very good hitter. But um, someone's gonna overpay. You know, some probably the Dodgers or someone, Angels are gonna come along, overpay and, and good for him, but I don't think I don't think it would be a wise
0: investment. Ladies and gentlemen, he's Jeff Perlman. He is the author of six books, including the Mets uh, World Championship run, The Bad Guys Won. You can follow his blog, uh, jeffperlman.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Jeff, I want to thank you for being on the Red Ticket Blues podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. That was was Jeff Perlman. I really want to thank him for coming on the podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I don't understand how you could. There's probably something wrong with you. But uh, he gave a lot of interesting uh insight into some historical sports figures that that i definitely appreciated listening to so thanks a lot to jeff for that um so yeah i hope you enjoyed a little different monday podcast vibe the thursday talk will continue with a guest next week that's right we're, we're giving you two guests this week we're going to bring in sports radio 94 wip sports talk show host joe gilio um and that is 94wip in Philadelphia joe also contributes at the uh newjersey.com nj.com new jersey newspaper so that will be interesting uh, we'll get to get to figure out wh- how exactly Joe got to where he's at and, uh, you know, what it's like to be a sports talk show host. So look for that coming Thursday. You can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and you can follow me at BrianBuck13 or the show at RedTicketBlues on Twitter. And with that being said, I'm out of here.